Billy Graham said these words. The strongest principle of life and blessing lies in our choice. Our life is the sum result of all the choices we make, both consciously and unconsciously. If we can control the process of choosing, we can take control of all aspects of our life. We can find the freedom that comes from being in charge of our life. So start with what is right rather than with what is acceptable. If you don't make a choice, then time will make it for you and time will always side against you. Almost everything that happens to us in our lives is the byproduct of the choices that we make. Now, some choices are small and the outcomes are insignificant, but other choices that we make carry huge consequences. Choices like who we're going to marry, that can make a big difference in how our lives shape up in the years to come. What we'll do for work or for industry or to make money. It's an important choice because the consequences and the ramifications of it can make or break our joy or our happiness or our position down the road as we walk along. Yet the problem with the choices that we make is that our human limitations often keep us from seeing far enough down the road to see what the actual outcome of our choices will ultimately be and if those things will turn out for our best or for our worst. As we come to Joshua chapter 24, the final chapter in Joshua and the final segment in Joshua's life, we also hear his final exhortation to the people he's been leading now for nearly 25 years. And what he's going to do is he's going to call them to make a choice. And this choice that he calls them to is the most important choice of all choices that can ever be made by any person at any time in any life. Because the way a person chooses in the choice that Joshua calls them to will make or break all the other choices that they make within their life. And so it's an important choice that he's calling them to. And so as we begin this chapter, we find Joshua, the general, taking off the mantle of governing leader and putting on the mantle of the prophet as he speaks to them now in the name of the Lord, to them for God. Now, in the last chapter, Joshua gathered the leaders together and he gave to them the keys of success, a dying man's last word to his successors, his sons. But in this chapter, he gathers the entire nation to speak to them on behalf of the Lord. And so Joshua's introduction in verse 1 of chapter 24, it says, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for their elder, the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Now, Joshua's home... The land that he was allotted was in the area that was called Timnath-Serah. And it was dead center in the segment of the land that was allotted to Ephraim. If you still have your map of the layout of the land that you received several studies ago. That's where Joshua lived. And most likely that was the setting for the speech that Joshua gave back in chapter 23. But we're told as he gathers the whole congregation now in chapter 24 that he does so in the area of Shechem. Shechem was about 19 miles northeast of Timnath-Serah where Joshua lived in the area of Manasseh that dwelt on the western shores of the uh, Jordan River. And so he moves to this place and he calls now the entire congregation of Israel there. And it causes us to ask the question of why would a dying man who's on in his years travel 19 miles to give a message that he could just as easily give from where he was? The answer is that Shechem was a place of great significance for the people of Israel. Shechem was the first place that Abraham set foot in the land when God had first called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. It was the first place that Abram, their father, had called upon the name of the Lord and erected an altar there calling on the Lord way back in Genesis when he first came into the land. Shechem was also the place where Jacob came and bought 
the first piece of real estate that was ever officially owned by Israel in the land for, from, from Shechem for a hundred pieces of silver. And, and there he buried the false gods of those that were in his company and where he also then built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. Shechem would be the place where Joshua, 25 years before this time, would gather the nation together and they would pronounce the blessings and the cursings from Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim of all the law of Moses that he had commanded to them. And the law would be plastered on a white stone there for all of the nation to see. And now it's the place where he calls them together to give them his final words. Shechem is the place where Israel's deepest root in the land was planted. And it was a place of great spiritual significance for the people. And it's from there that Joshua wants to give them this land that they might consider all that they have been and to also consider where they're going. I'll pause here to say that sometimes there is significance in the place where you hear a message or a sermon, if you would, a word from the Lord. It would have been easy for Joshua to just give this study, maybe even write it down and have some of the governors or the leaders just read it to the people. But he doesn't do that. He knows that the people need to be together and they need to be in a certain place for the message to have the full impact. And I believe there's some significance to that even in our lives today. I heard someone say recently that in the internet age in which we live, it isn't necessary for us to go to church. That we can take in a message online or just join into a church service via the internet and it's no longer critical that we actually go to a place and hear the word of God. I disagree. There's a certain dynamic that exists when the people of God come together where two or more are gathered in his name, as Jesus said. And the word of God is given to us by the spirit of God, taught, expounded truthfully, and we all hear it together. There's a dynamic that comes to us when we do it this way that you can't get from a CD or a recording or even from a live broadcast via the internet. It's significant. There's something to it. And I believe that Joshua understood that and thus he travels the 19 miles to Shechem because he knows that that's the place where this message uh, needs to be given. God speaks through the messages that are given in church services. It's one of the ways that we discover not only the characteristics and truths about God, but also where we receive counsel from God, the Holy Spirit, as he moves upon his word, and we hear things that are applicable and directive concerning our path and for our lives. And so it's important. It's an important thing. So he gathers them together here at Shechem, and now he begins speaking in the name of the Lord, and he begins with Abraham, verse 2. It says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Now Joshua's going somewhere with this. He's not just speaking extemporaneously about whatever comes into his heart, but he begins with Abraham and he begins with Abraham on purpose. And the reason is this, because Abraham is the first man who ever made a choice in the way that he's going to call them to choose. He tells us that Abraham was one who worshiped idols on the other side of the river. Abram was from Ur of the Chaldees, which was a providence of Babylon where idol worship was prevalent and luxury was really pioneered. That was the beginning of hot tubs and different things that happened in Ur. And that's where Abraham was from. And Joshua points that out to us, that he was an idol worshiper. He bowed down to false gods. And the reason why he points that out to us is because he wants us to know that Abram, Abraham was not an extraordinary man. He wasn't someone who was different from you and I. He wasn't born with a halo around his head or a holy glow. He didn't have special powers that you and I don't have. He was just like you and I. And he was living a vain life, just like we were prior to our coming to Christ, our knowledge of God. 
But Abraham heard the voice of God from the place that he was there in Ur. And the voice of God said to him, get out of this land and get away from this lifestyle. And Abraham made a choice. He obeyed. He did the thing that God had called him to do. He made the choice. And so what he did was that he took his life out of his own hand and he placed it into the hand of God. And here's what God did. God took it. And God always takes the life that's placed into his hand. But God didn't just take it and say, okay, Abe, now you belong to me. But then God led Abram. That's what Joshua says. He took him out of that place and he led him to the land that he would one day give him. And then God gave him Isaac, Joshua tells us. And the reason he tells us that is because Isaac was the fulfillment of the promise that had been given to him, that he would have a son and that that son would ultimately become the father of the nation that God would birth. And so Abram made a choice. He gave his life to God and God took it. God led him and then God blessed him and fulfilled the promise that he made. And Joshua brings that to to their attention. Then he gives to them another couple of people that made a choice. Look with me there at verse 4. He says, To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, that's Edom. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. The second set of people that he brings up are Esau and Jacob, and those two also made a choice. In case you're not familiar with the story, Jacob and Esau were twins. They were born to Isaac and Rebekah later on in their life after Rebekah had been barren. And eventually she conceives and she has these twins. And Esau was the firstborn. And thus he was flagged from birth to be the one that would ultimately carry on the line. That he would be the progenitor of Abraham's seed through Isaac that would ultimately become God's nation. But he made a choice. The Bible tells us that Esau was an earthly man that he was worldly-minded, that he was consumed with self, and he had no interest in the things of God or the plan of God or even the things concerning his family and his history. He despised it, and that he was more interested in his next meal than what God would ultimately do for him or through him. Jacob also made a choice. He was interested in all of those things. He was interested in God's plan. He was interested in what God had done through Abraham and then through Isaac. And what God might one day do through him. And so Jacob, though he did it deceptively, he made a choice. He chose to serve the Lord. And God blessed Esau. He gave him Edom. But it wasn't what would ultimately become God's way, God's plan. That was through Jacob. Jacob was led by God down to Egypt. So what did God do? Well, Jacob had his name changed to Israel. You know the story. He wrestled with God all night. And and, and he said to the Lord early in the morning, the Lord said, it's time for me to go. And it says that Jacob held on to him and said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And it says that the Lord touched the joint of his hip and the muscle shrank. And he he said, you are no longer going to be called Jacob, but your name will now be called Israel. Israel means governed by God. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and ultimately his 12 sons would become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jacob became synonymous with Israel because it was through Jacob that Israel, the nation, would be birthed. So what did God do with Israel and his children who made a choice to follow him? The answer is in the following verses. Pick up with me in verse 5. He says, also then, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. If you've been with us, you know, 40 years they were in the wilderness. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. 
Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them. And you eat of the vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. Thus God recounts to the people through Joshua what he did for a man and ultimately his family, the fathers of the audience here, when they made a choice to simply follow him. What did God do for them? Well, I circled the words in my Bible. You might want to do the same. Let me just read to you the circled words in my Bible from the verses I just read. God says, I took, I gave, I sent, I brought, I brought, I did, I brought, I gave, I destroyed them, I would not listen to them, I delivered you out of their hand, I sent the hornet, and I have given you a land. What did God do for them? (laughs) everything they chose to serve and to follow him and the result of that choice is that God led them he multiplied them he blessed them he took their lives and he brought them into the promise that he had made for them as God always does with those that choose to serve him well this brings us now to the point of Joshua's exhortation. What was the purpose of the speech? Why is Joshua bringing all of this history up into their hearing, into their ears? It's because of what he's about to challenge them with now as we come to verse 14. It says, now therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, it's always tying what just was said into what's about to be said. It's the application part of Joshua's message. In light of everything you've just heard, he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. At this point, Joshua moves from the past into the present. A new generation now has seen through the lens of history and also through the lens of their own experience, all of who God is and what God does for those who follow him. And now a new choice must be made. Not the choice that Abraham made and not the choice that Jacob made, but the choice that this generation is now going to be called to account for. And so he says to them, now, therefore, in light of everything that you know of God, And everything that he has done for your fathers and done for you, this is what you're to do. He says, first of all, you're to fear the Lord. The word fear in the Hebrew language, it means to revere with awesome respect. And the idea is to let the severity, the size, and the sovereign power of God touch your emotions. That you're to grab with as much understanding as you can an idea or a grasping of who he is, how great he is, and you're to let that affect your soul and affect your life. He's not just a character in a novel that you can hear about and experience for a moment or intellectually understand but not be affected and moved by, but your emotions are to be impacted by who he is and the size of that God. He says you're to fear him, to revere him, that there's an awesomeness about his presence and a respect for him because he's God. He says that you're to fear him and then you're to serve him. And the word serve means to enslave yourself to him or to be a bond servant of. Now we know what a bond servant is. It's a servant by choice. There were slaves that were sold as slaves because they couldn't pay their debts. There were slaves that were born into slavery because of unfortunate circumstances. But then there were slaves who were slaves by choice. Because they loved their master and they knew that they had it better in service for him than for any other life they could have. And that's the service that he's exhorting them to willingly embrace for themselves. Serve the Lord. 
give yourself to be his slave and to be a bondman for him. And then he qualifies that. He says, in sincerity and in truth. The word sincerity means your complete, whole, entire self, both in public and in private. That's what sincere means. It means that there's no area of your life that isn't consecrated unto the Lord. That there's no secret closet or compartment of your heart that you withhold for yourself and say, God, you can have this much, but no more. You can have this much of who I am, but this little part over here, this is mine and you can't have it. That's not serving God in sincerity. But to serve him in sincerity is to give him every key to every cupboard and closet and to say, Lord, you have my life for all that it is and let there be nothing, Lord, no door unopened. Nothing unturned, Lord, you take it all. That's what it means to serve him in sincerity. It's to give him all of you, to completely relinquish yourself to him. But then it also says in truth. And when you read that in the Bible, the truth always speaks of God and not of us. And the idea behind truth in this context is that you're to serve him for who he is. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he said that the Father is seeking those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's much the same sentiment that Joshua is calling them to account for here when he says in sincerity and in truth. Truth means that God is worshipped for who he is and the way that he calls to be worshipped. There's a lot of people that take and kind of pick and choose the attributes and the things of God, the characteristics that they like, and then they ignore the others. Well, I like this about God, but I don't like that. I like the truth about his love, but the wrath stuff, I'm not sure. And so they'll kind of pick and choose what they want, but that's not serving God in truth. And Joshua says, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity, that deals with you, and in truth, that deals with him. And here's the idea that you give yourself completely to him in every area of your life, and then you receive him for who he is and all that he is. And in order to do this, it's going to require, he says, that you put away the lowercase gods which your father served on the other side of the flood. Now, if we were to rephrase this call, this clear call that Joshua gives to these people, and we were to put it in New Testament terms, the result of it would be Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, verses that all of us are most likely familiar with. Let me read them to you. Paul the Apostle writes to the church, and he says to them, again, I beseech you, therefore. And the therefore, again, is in light of all that God has done. He says, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's sincerity. That your whole life is laid down upon the altar of living sacrifice. you, You get the picture of a lamb being placed upon the altar, and it's going to be consumed completely by the fire that's burning there. Not one part of that lamb will be untouched by the fire or unconsumed. And that's what we're called to be, a living sacrifice, completely consecrated to him. And then he says, Part two, he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And there you have the other two ingredients. You have truth, which is the good and perfect, acceptable will of God, and the putting away of the false gods, which is do not be conformed to this world. And so essentially what Joshua is calling them to is the same thing that Paul calls us to in Romans chapter 12. And that is this. And this is for us, church, not for them. Listen, in light of all that God has done, in light of who he is and who he's shown himself and proven himself to be, our reasonable act of service in response to that is that we would fear him and that we would serve him in sincerity and in truth. However, the choice of whether or not we're going to do that is up to us. The ball's in our court. And it's the choice that Joshua lays before them in verse 15. He says, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And here he's calling them to this choice. 
You can either serve the Lord or you can serve the gods whom your father served, the gods and the other. But you're going to choose. You've got to choose. Now, there's two facts that you cannot escape about this. Facts number one, fact number one is this, is that you do not have to serve the Lord, but you will serve something. Nobody is a free moral agent. Nobody doesn't have a master. Everyone is mastered by someone or something. And if you choose to not serve the Lord, then you're going to serve something else, and it will be some other lowercase g. And here's fact number two, is that the God that you serve, the lowercase g, God, is ultimately going to be reflected in your life. There's going to be a mark in you, upon you, that's reflected or reflective of the God that you serve. Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says it this way. It says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Now, the gods that Josh was referring to, the Egyptian gods, the Canaanite gods, those gods numbered in the hundreds and in the thousands. There were literally gods for everything. Gods for the rising and the setting of the sun, gods for the rain, gods to keep you walking at a steady pace, gods to keep you healthy. I mean, you name it, and there was a god that was served, an idol, an image that was associated with God, and then a form of behavior that you would practice in order to worship or do devotion to those gods that's the way that it was now here's the amazing thing is that for each of the things that god did for his people that were highlighted in the above verses when he talks about abraham isaac and jacob and moses and egypt and pharaoh and balaam and all that god had done for them in all those verses they had a different god that they would have to serve in order to do all of those different things They would have to bow to a God, a separate God for direction and leading, for fertility and family expansion, for preservation, for provision, for war, for battle, for victory, to block a curse, to exercise power over nature like God did at the Red Sea and then again at the Jordan, or a God for prosperity as God had prospered them. They had to serve a different God to do all of those things, and yet the true and the living God, he says, I'm the God of all flesh. I'm God, the Lord Almighty, and there's nothing too hard for me. But Joshua says, you have the choice. You can serve the true and the living God, or you can serve the gods whom your fathers did. Now, all of the pagan gods that they worshipped in Egypt and in Canaan were relevant to the circumstances of the day when those people lived. And they fit inside the limitations of man's primitive understanding. We don't worship the, you know, the God that you know, is the back of the turtle. You know, they believed that the, the earth was on the back of a turtle, and so they worship. We, don't, we know that's not true. We don't worship. That's irrelevant to us now. We say that that's foolishness. However, there are idols and lowercase gods in the United States of America and in our culture and society, and that influence us even today, that are as pagan and as destructive and dead as the gods that they served in their day. We serve, in our culture, the god of money, the false god of mammon. We lean on it, we worship it, we devote ourselves to it, we think about it, we give our affection to it. We worship gods of pleasure and of power, gods of sex, of sports, of fame, Some people worship their bodies or their mind or their education. There are literally hundreds of things that people give themselves to or worship today that are false gods that master them. Here's the problem with false gods, lowercase gods, is that when you serve those things, you become a byproduct of them and your life becomes a reflection of what they are. In Psalm 115, the psalmist says it this way. Verse 3, he says, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. 
nor do they mutter through their throat. And here's the kicker, verse 8. He says, those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. And here's the principle, is that what you worship is what you become. Whatever masters you, whatever you bow down to or me, we become like the thing that we bow down to. We begin to take on the attributes of those dead things. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have mouths, but they can't speak. And we become a reflection of the deadness that they are. Our lives become hollow. They become meaningless. They become empty because we were not created to serve those dead things. That's problem number one, that we become like them. Here's problem number two, is that those things are dead. And they have no real power to save or to help you. What are you going to do in the day of your trouble when you have a real need and you find that your God or the thing that you follow or give yourself to has no power to save you? Who will you call out to in that day? Hugh Hefner, save me. You'll get no response. Cocaine, cocaine, now I have cancer, help. Dow Jones, Dow Jones, help. See, they're worshipped. Affection, attention is given to them, but they have no power to save. They can't profit you at all. Whereas the true and the living God, he says, call unto me and I'll answer you. Seek and you'll find. Seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart and with all your soul. What God are you serving? He calls them to choose. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. Now, the Bible says that we were made in the image of God. Man is made in the image of God, and we were made to be a reflection of him and an expression of who he is. Well, who is God? We understand the characteristics of the false gods. Who is the true and the living God? Well, he's the eternal, self-existent, all-powerful, all-knowing, creator, sustainer, life-giving, lover of your soul who fills and satisfies all things. And when you choose him and you choose with your life to serve him and follow him, then you experience him and you become like him because what you worship is what you become. And so the things that define him then become evident in your life and in mine. The Bible says that God is love. So when we serve him in sincerity and truth, his love fills our lives and it becomes a reflection of him to those that are around us in our world. And we become loving people. The Bible says that God is light. So when we worship him, we become like him. And so our eyes, our life, our countenance is filled with light. We find light for our feet and for our path as we navigate through the world. The Bible says that in him is wisdom and truth. So when we serve him in sincerity and truth, we find that we're filled with his wisdom, with his leading, his direction. It's reflected in the decisions that we make in the way that we go. And so those decisions that we have to make that ultimately dictate where we'll end up in the future begin to make sense. And we begin to see, God, you're leading me and you're alive and you're real. I never could have figured this out because my limitations don't allow me to see this far down the road. But you have power and Lord, you're doing a work in my life. The Bible says that God is truth. And so we worship and serve him and we become agents of truth our lives become transparent it becomes evident to those around us that we know where we're going there's a confidence that's not in self that isn't arrogant but there's a confidence in god as we walk in a state of rest because we're following him the bible says that in his presence are pleasures forevermore and so as we worship and serve him we sense his pleasure over our lives We wake up in the morning and we look up towards heaven and we realize that the God who made all things is in love with me and that I have favor with him and that his heart towards me is joyful. And there's an incredible thing. Now, who wouldn't serve a God like that? The answer is they wouldn't. Notice what happens as we move on here in our text. It says, so the people answered, verse 16, and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. 
And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now, these people do what most people do in church. They all raise their hand. They all come forward. They all say amen. And they recount to Joshua all the things that he said. But notice Joshua's response to their zealous appeal. Verse 19. It says, but Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you even after he has done you good. He says to them, listen, you in the state that you are in right now, you cannot serve the Lord. You profess with your mouth that you want to serve him, that you want to follow him. But your life doesn't line up with your profession. And what you are right now is not an acceptable sacrifice because though you say you want to serve the Lord, your choice in your behavior demonstrates that you're choosing something else. You cannot serve the Lord as you are uh, right now. And here's why. Here's what, what was wrong with them, the, 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 the uh, mismatch between what they professed and what they were, is that they lacked the sincerity and the truth. Their lives weren't fully consecrated unto the Lord. They were following him only in the ways that they wanted to and doing the things that they wanted, but they were secretly practicing idolatry in their tents. He brings that up. They weren't following him in truth. They were cherry-picking the parts of his nature and attributes that they wanted, but they were neglecting the others. Well, we like his power, and we want his help as we go to battle. We seek his prosperity, but we aren't so crazy about the fact that he's holy and that he calls us to be holy, or that he will judge us if we forsake him. We don't like those things, and so they failed to follow in sincerity and in truth, and the proof of that is that they were already worshiping idols. And God says that my response to that is that I am a jealous God. You say, wait a minute. God, the jealous God? Isn't envy a sin? Well, how can God carry an attribute of something that he forbids in others? What does it mean that God is a jealous God? Listen, God was not jealous of them. This isn't envy. God was jealous for them. Just like we are jealous for our kids. I'm not jealous of my... Sometimes I'm, I am jealous of, of my kids. For the most part, I'm not jealous of my kids, you know. But I am jealous for my kids. I want the absolute very best for them. And when I see them walking in a way where they're going to fall short of that best, it breaks my heart. And that's what God saw in these people. He says, you are worshiping and following gods that will ultimately end in your ruin and your demise. And I will not put my blessing on that because I am jealous for you and I'm very concerned with you having the absolute best. And so God says, as long as you persist in following and worshiping idols, giving your affection, your attention, and your devotion to things other than me and putting me last, I'm not going to show myself strong on your behalf. I will not share space with false gods, lowercase g. And when you turn, when you will serve me with all your heart and with all your might, then you're going to find my strength at work in you. But as you are right now, you cannot. God says he's jealous for them. Well, here's the decision that they make. They repent. Good news. The story has a happy ending, at least for a while. Verse 21. It says, And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made them or made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. They turn. They repent. They say, you know what, Joshua, you're right. And he calls them to account. He says, put away the foreign gods. And they say that we will. Now, the reason we know that they actually repented is because we're going to find out in a few verses that they did serve the Lord through Joshua's life and then into the end of the lives of the leaders that outlived Joshua. 
So where they began is that they were worshiping idols, and, and Joshua says, you're not in a right state before God. But where the chapter ends, he says that they are in a right state before God. Therefore, they made the right choice. They chose. They said, yes, you're right, Joshua. We've got to serve the Lord. So here's the closure now, the closure of uh, the episode and also the closure of Joshua's life, verse 26. It says, then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone, and he set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord when he spoke to us, and it shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So added to the monument that was already in Shechem of the law of Moses that had been plastered on stones now is this new stone that's set up for a witness of this testimony of Joshua and the response of the people. And then it says in verse 28, so Joshua let the people depart each to his own inheritance. And you can almost read over that verse that each departed to his own inheritance, but I believe there's some significance in that verse. There's a clue given to us in verse 28 that points to the ultimate demise of the future generations. It's not going to be long before the people of God are going to turn away from God. As we get into the book of Judges, we're going to see it didn't take long at all. It's just a couple of years after the death of Joshua, they begin to forsake and they begin to backslide and they begin to turn away. And I believe the foundation of that backsliding is seen right here in verse 28. It says that each man departed to his own inheritance and here's the principle is that isolation lends itself towards corruption say it again isolation lends itself toward corruption the key verse that highlights the apostasy that the people will follow into in in joshua is that every man did that which was right in his own eyes we're going to hear that phrase over and over again throughout the book of judges And the root of that starts here, that each man departed to his own inheritance. It's my life, and I'll keep it to myself, and I won't share it with anybody else. And here's how that works. This is why that's so dangerous, is because a person goes to church. They come and they hear a message, any message, maybe not this one, but another one, where God speaks to them. He convicts them. He puts his finger on something in their life, and he says, this has to change. There's something amiss. There's something wrong. And the Spirit of God moves you. And you say, yes, Lord, I agree. I want that freedom, and I'm submitting to you. I'm consciously choosing. I'm maybe even standing or coming forward and saying, God, set me free from this thing. But here's what happens, is that you go your way, and you leave, and you go home, and there's no accountability. There's been no you know, maybe confession of that to someone else. And so you go home and the conviction begins to wane. And and those things that you're doing or that thing that stumbles you is still available to you. And so you put it off for a little while and you say, yeah, I'm going to take care of that. But then the conviction goes away and you find yourself drawn to it again and you get caught up in something that you had confessed to God that you wanted to be free of. And you find yourself backsliding back into the same thing again because of the isolation and the lack of accountability of of, of having brothers and sisters that know you, that you pray with, pray for them, and, and they pray for you, that you might have victory and that you might encourage and sharpen one another. Mike Ditka was the coach of the Chicago Bears for many prosperous years in that organization. And he is known, was known to be a man who had an extremely foul mouth. That he couldn't get a sentence out without two or three curse words being thrown in there unnecessarily. And, and he recognized that this was a fault that he had, and he wanted to be rid of it. And so here's what he did. On opening day of, of the season, when everybody got together just to, you know, to practice and talk, he told his players this. He said, I don't want to have a foul mouth anymore, and so here's what I'm going to do. For this entire season, every time I use a curse word, I'm going to donate $1,000 to charity. Every curse word, $1,000. And he said, and I want you to hold me accountable. Every time you hear it, say, Coach, there's 1000 Do you know how much money Mike Didka spent that year? Zero. A little accountability goes a long way. And see, sometimes when we have something that God puts his finger on in our life, 
And he says, I'm dealing with this right now. And we might say, Lord, that's too big for me. I'm willing, but I can't. And we go to our inheritance and we isolate ourselves and we close ourselves off. Ultimately, we're going to end up falling back into it because those things are bigger than we are. But a little accountability goes a long way. It's a principle that we see uh, here in this text. You know, we close the book, verse 29. Now, from verse 29 through 33, it must be written by someone else um, because Joshua uh, passes. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had, not, or who had known all the works of the Lord, which he did, had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground, which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. The book of Joshua closes with three burials. The burial of Joshua, their great leader, The burial of the bones of Joseph, who had died some 400 years previously in Egypt and had prophesied and asked that his bones be carried up out of Egypt, that he wouldn't be buried there, but buried in the land. And he's buried. And then the third is Eliezer, the priest who served the people of Israel all the days of Joshua. What's the significance behind the author just giving to us the burial of three men that died? I believe it is significant, and here's why. Because what this symbolizes is the completion and the fulfillment of the promise of God that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their successive generations to give them the promised land. That promise has now been fulfilled. They're in the land. God did for Abraham exactly what he said he was going to do way back in Genesis chapter 12. That he would multiply his descendants exceedingly and that he would bring him into that land as far north, south, east, and west as he could see. And that promise took 430 years to complete, but now it's completed. Joshua prophesied of it when he asked that his bones be brought forward, and Eliezer served in seeing it completed, and now that promise is complete. And so this burial symbolizes the ending of a former generation, but it also symbolizes the start of a new one. See, everything that has happened unto Israel up to this point was the result of the choice that was made by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their fathers. But at this point, all of those fruits have been experienced and tasted, and now a new generation is called upon to make a choice. Look, Joshua's saying, the chapter is closed. The story is complete thus far. And a new chapter begins. You're the author of it. What choice would you make? What will the books say 430 years from now based upon the choices that this generation makes? It's a fitting exhortation as we finish the book. Every generation must choose and every individual must make that choice for themselves. As Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The call that came to them at the end of Joshua's life is the same call that we come to as we come to the end of Joshua's book. We are all called to choose. Choose. Who will you serve? Right now, if you were honest with yourself, or if God could look at your life and he could assess for himself, who are you serving? Are you serving the true and the living God? Are our lives really consecrated to him where we would say, Lord, you are truly first. I'm your bondman. Whatever your will is for me, Lord, that's what I want. There's no closet I withhold from you. There's no area of my life. There's no habit. There's no practice. There's nothing, Lord, that isn't at your discretion to put away or to have authority to remove from my life or to put into my life if that's the case. Who am I serving? Who are we serving? The decision that we make in terms of who we serve 
will be what makes or breaks every other choice and decision that we make in our life. We can either look back at the end of our span and look forward at the end of our span and see blessing in our past and hope in our future, or we can see demise, destruction, and ruin because we did it our way. We went our own way. So who do we choose? Will we serve the gods of America? Money, pleasure, power. What will be the outcome of that? Look around. What do we see when we look around at the world and we see those who serve gods of money and power and pleasure? It's the result of the world. The result is the world that we live in today. But what about if we choose to serve the Lord? If you here tonight make a choice to say, Lord, I want to serve you. I want my life to be lived for you and for your glory. Here's what God will do for you, guaranteed. He'll take your life. He won't reject you or say, no, you're not good enough or you're not holy enough or your past is too shady. He takes every life that chooses him. He will take it. And then number two, he will lead you. Just as he led Abraham, he led Jacob, he led Israel. Destroying their enemies, squashing those who tried to curse them, lifting them up and multiplying them, blessing them and bringing them into the inheritance that he had for them. God will lead your life. Number three, he will fulfill the promise or promises that he has made. And how that translates for you and me is this, is that you will discover the very purpose and intent for which God made you. Why did God make you? You don't look like anyone else. You don't think like anyone else. You don't like the same things that anyone else likes or have the same strengths and weaknesses. You are completely unique to you, and God made you in his image for you to be a specific and exact representation of him in the way that he wants. And when you give your life to the Lord, he will bring you to the place where your life becomes that expression. And that's when you find the ultimate purpose and reason for your life, and you say, yes, Lord, this is what I was made for. Bring glory to your name. So may God give us wisdom that we might choose him. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. It's been such a joy, Lord, to go through the pages of Joshua's life and ministry and to see how you led your people through his years and under his leadership and to be able to see ourselves in that story. And we make it our prayer tonight, Lord, that we might be those who cross the Jordan River no longer wandering in the wilderness, but entering into the fullness of the promised life that comes from you. That we might see our enemies fall before us. That walls of high cities, impenetrable, would crumble as we just do what you say and obey your word. That our inheritance would be divided to us. And that we might see your strength and your strong arm at work in us. And so, Father, we pray tonight that you would search every heart here. Lord, we ask that you would give us a moment of crystal clarity and that we might in honesty come to you and say either, yes, Lord, there's things in my life that need to be, that should be or shouldn't be. Lord, give us the grace and the wisdom. And we ask that you would steer our will and direct us in the way that you would have us to be. We thank you so much, Lord, for this. We ask you to move in us, Lord, now. And as we sing this song, Lord, I pray that there would be a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. That we might know what is that perfect, acceptable, good will of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.